welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on August 21st, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This week, more about bees and all manner of other insects with entomologist May Berenbaum from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Now, last week I promised you that you'd also get a fellow named John Williams, the beekeeper at Darwin's home in England. However, I'm traveling and I apparently neglected to bring along that audio file, but this problem is easily fixed because what was supposed to be a two-part podcast is now, ta-da, a three-part podcast. I plan to post the Williams chat on Tuesday, the 25th of August, so look or listen for that. Meanwhile, here's more with May Barenbaum. Early in our conversation, she mentions Reed Johnson. You'll recall from part one that Reed is her student working on genomes. Honeybees, everybody thinks, eat honey and pollen, but in reality, they feed their grubs something called bee bread, which is a mixture of honey and pollen packed into cells, and it cures or ages. And the suspicion is that maybe some of these symbiotic microbes are contributing to the sort of processing of bee bread. So one of the findings from this yet unpublished work that was uh, discussed in Florida which at the meeting that Reed attended, Apiary Inspectors of America, was uh, high fructose corn syrup, which is the preferred diet for uh, overwintering bees because it's much cheaper than feeding them honey or sugar, uh, apparently wipes out these potentially symbiotic microbes. One thing that Reed found that's in his dissertation, when you feed honeybees honey, they upregulate their cytochrome P450 monooxygenases, these, uh, these enzymes that process, among other things, plant chemicals. When you give them sugar, there's nothing. So when you feed them on a sugar diet, they are not turning on their their chemical processing equipment. So this is something that nobody expected. I mean, people are used to thinking of honeybees as broad generalists because they'll feed on hundreds of different flowers. But in a way, they're dietary super specialists because they feed on these this narrow range. They feed on pollen, honey, and bee bread. And uh, granted, the components can come from all different places, but uh, feeding on nectar or honey derived from nectar is a very different proposition from feeding on other types of plant tissue because plants load up their vulnerable tissues with chemicals, you know, natural pesticides, so that insects won't eat them. But they want insects to eat nectar. That's the whole point of nectar. So So it's possible that this high fructose corn syrup that's, you know, at least partially responsible for the obesity epidemic in humans is also (laughs) having a devastating effect on the bee population. Well, that's a big jump. But I would say that feeding bees other than honey may have physiological consequences that nobody anticipated. Uh, Back in the 70s, the study, the dietary studies were conducted at the the USD, at least one of the USD bee labs. And certainly short term, there's no longevity effect. And that's, that actually led to the widespread adoption of these alternative diets. But nobody was looking at the microbial symbionts in the gut. Nobody was looking at the detoxification enzymes. We didn't even know to look. So there may be subtle effects. That's another focus, too, is people have, for a long time, the way the EPA uh, registers uh, insecticides as being safe or unsafe for bees, they do bioassays with uh, adult workers. Well, adult worker physiology is very different from every other life stage. Uh, it's just really hard to figure out. Bees, I've worked with caterpillars since like 1976. Uh, 
bees are hard to work with. They are very complicated. They are, I mean, they have this amazing social behavior and awareness. Caterpillars are nothing but eating machines. You know, I've seen black swallowtail caterpillars chewing on parsley foliage while a spine soldier bug is sucking out the hemolymph from the other end. They are so intense. All they do is eat. That's what they're you know, they can increase in in size and weight, you know, four to ten thousand fold in a couple of weeks. They eat their weight, their own weight in plant food. That's what they do. Um, so they have no kind of sense of awareness or recognition of family relationships. So that was one of the really difficult things about doing microarray to determine um, causes of colony collapse disorder. It's really a correlative uh, approach. And what complicates things is that you're looking at genes that are turned on or turned off or turned way up or turned up a little. And uh, there will be genes that are turned on in response to whatever the the causative phenomenon might be. But there are also genes that are being that, whose expression is being changed because the social structure is being changed. If it's as if you woke up one morning and half of Chicago was gone, your stress genes would be turned on that would have nothing to do with whatever wiped out half of Chicago. And that's what we're working with the microarray. We have the advantage of the human genome. We know a lot more about what the genes do. So you saw that in the microarray, that big hunk of that are genes, then we don't know what their function is. The state of colony collapse disorder understanding is we have a, a lot of kind of interesting promising, tantalizing leads, but there's still nothing that we have absolutely pinned down as the cause of this strange disappearance of the bees. There are uh, uh, constituencies who feel more or less strongly about the various and sundry causative or contributing factors, but there's no consensus at all. And the general perception is that it's... uh, a phenomenon that is uh, perhaps uh, due to multiple or uh, has arisen from multiple causes. But one interesting uh, consequence of colony collapse disorder, this was uh, uh, Kim Flottam. He runs Bee Culture Magazine, and he has a blog, Bee Log. (laughs) Um, And he uh, uh, remarked that uh, more has been learned about bees in the last two years than in the last 20. And, you know, this is seriously, seriously overdue. This is a $15 billion industry. I mean, forget the bee is our friend and an inspiration and a model for social behavior. And, you know, this is a $15 billion industry that has been profoundly neglected technologically. And so this could ultimately wind up being a blessing in disguise. Um, I suppose. I guess it depends on what the last chapter is. But, yeah, yeah, in, in terms... In a sense that knowledge is power, yes, absolutely. We we have a, a, a lot to learn, and at least the pace of learning has been stepped up. Let's talk about some of your other work. You do some uh, really fun stuff. Uh, your husband, let's, well, let everybody know. Tell, your, tell about your husband and the project that you two work on together. Well, um, since uh, 1984, we have, uh, uh, University of Illinois has put on an insect fear film festival. Uh, where we show bad insect science fiction and then explain to people why what they're about to see can't possibly happen. So um, we found this to be an incredibly effective uh, mechanism for 
raising the general level of knowledge and sophistication about insects. And, and uh, your husband's a, a, he's he's a, a film, film study. He's a film well, professor. What's his name? Richard Laskowski. In fact, we met because of the Insect Fear Film Festival. At Cornell. No, no, uh, this was at uh, Illinois. Um, I had the idea for a festival when I was a graduate student at Cornell. Uh, they thought it was not dignified. So I got my degree and went to University of Illinois, waited a few years to establish my reputation as a solid scientist, and then went to the department head and pitched the idea, and he thought it was great. So. You know, I went to Cornell, too, so oh, we nice. showed them who's dignified. <laughs> so you do this film festival. I remember reading about it. You had an article in the Ecological Society of America's... Life History Strategies in the Movies, yeah. Briefly explain that to people. That's a really fun concept. Well, um, we're now dealing with invasive species. Uh, it's now a catchphrase or a term that a lot of Americans are familiar with. These are uh, species that come from elsewhere um, and uh, wreak havoc. They, typically, they're invasive species is another name for aliens, you know, non-native species. Well, movies have been dealing with aliens for a very long time. And I noticed as an ecologist that the the life history strategy, the biological attributes of these invading space aliens really would be a recipe for disaster. For were, them. For biological, if they were real biological organisms that were intent on invading Earth. Um, typically, invasive species that are successful are small and extremely numerous. Invading aliens tend to be like the size of Winnebago's and uh, relatively few in number. You can tell from the titles, the black scorpion, you know, the deadly mantis, and, uh, not hordes of them. They uh, also, in movies, tend not to reproduce. I mean, it's hard to do if you're, you know, you have uh, biparental sexual reproduction. There's only one of you. Uh, which is one reason I think that often aliens come to Earth to look for mates, you know, and everybody, it's another life history strategy that's doomed because interspecific hybridization generally is not a recipe for success, so. What was it? Mars, Mars needs, needs women. women. Right. That probably wasn't going to work out too well. This, uh, you know, the hybrid inviability, hybrid sterility somehow doesn't apply to aliens. Uh, Mr. Sp uh, Spock being uh, an exception, I guess. He was half Vulcan and half human. Right, but we don't know if he could reproduce. Good point. He could have been the mule of the uh, Star Trek uh, yeah. Starship Enterprise. You, you bring up something that I, I've i been meaning to get into for a long time, and that is that um, science fiction features a lot of interspecies relationships. I don't know what that says about the movie-going psyche. <laughs> But they, they look humanoid, so we sort of overlook it, but yes. Well, that's the other thing. You know, the, they tend, the, these movie aliens often are, um, real invasive aliens are small, so they can escape notice. Um, particularly in sort of low-budget uh, science fiction films, aliens tend to be about human size because that way they can fit into the costume. You know, <laughs> Robot the monster. Yeah, exactly. Um, gosh, uh, it was a monster from Green Hell was about uh, cosmic radiation-induced giant wasps, and basically they had one-and-a-half giant wasps. They constructed models and just to keep the budget, you know, the cost down. So size, number, um, reproductive uh, behavior. The, um, and then another uh, ecological attribute that differs on screen and in reality is usually... Um, the density-dependent de mortality sources tend to regulate populations. Generally, in particularly in 1950s um, sci-fi films, 
It's oh, napalm, electricity, reversing the polarity. It's all these physical factors that uh, don't really play quite as important a role. You know, uh, an exception being uh, War of the Worlds, where right, we... where it's a germ, yeah, a, a, a micro. That's a little bit more. That that, that was not a low rent movie. That was a, right, right. Yeah. I'm talking about the Gene Barry version. Yeah, well, even that was a step up from Bert I. Gordon and Beginning of the End and uh, Earth versus the Spider. So Earth versus the Spider. It's got to be a pretty big spider. So um, it was a giant spider. Yeah. So if I if I really want to do a, a sci-fi movie that's sort of accurate about a threat, I have the aliens send a few hundred billion microbes. Yeah, that well, yeah, that would be certainly uh, one way to do it. Microbes, I I think insects would be better because they're mobile on their own. A lot of microbes um, rely on vectors to carry them around. They're not quite so mobile. They requ- maybe require water. There, that's a vulnerability. You know. Cholera, for example, you boil the water, you'll be all right. Um, or you take the handle off the pump, as uh, um, uh, John Snow, John Snow in uh, London. Um, but as our continuing struggle to deal with malaria, which is a leading cause of death of kids under five worldwide, and routinely sickens two hundred, three hundred million people every year, that insect partnership makes them makes it really. Challenge, really challenging um, control uh, issues. Now, let's tell a, a story about um, you. Do does anybody still jokingly refer to you as Bambi Berenbaum? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, thanks to TV and the internet. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I have to say that I, I used to carry my Bambi Berenbaum collector card around because people would come up afterwards ask me to sign theirs. And, well, explain who Bambi Berenbaum is and, and how you got involved in all that. There's an X-Files episode called War of the Coprophages where Mulder is called in to investigate a mysterious rash of cockroach-related deaths that lead him to suspect that perhaps these cockroaches may be of extraterrestrial origin. Investigating the the, the cockroaches leads him to a USDA facility where he's confronted by Dr. Bambi Berenbaum, USDA entomologist. Uh, I first saw the write-up, in, you know, the blurb in the newspaper, the you know, episode summary. I thought, this cannot be a coincidence. And I watched the show and I was like, that oh, sounds really familiar. And it turns out it took me a while to track him down. But Darren Morgan, the scriptwriter, uh, for the, that particular episode, uh, had used my books for background research and he wanted a plausible name for a female entomologist. Um, so Berenbaum worked. Bambi was just kind of icing on the cake, I think. And what's really nice, there's, you know, stereotypes about entomologists and scientists in general, you know, Coke bottle glasses, which I happen to wear and, you know, no sense of fashion or style. Well, let me cover this for you. The Bambi Berenbaum in that show was was a very attractive young lady. She was a total babe. So I I think that's fabulous, you know. And if I remember correctly, uh, Mulder has a a, a real yeah. thing for her. There's a moment where she it looks like they might uh, hook up, but then she goes off with the genius roboticist who's uh, wheelchair bound. I was rooting for Mulder. You have a at least one book out for a general audience. Uh, tell us about that book and, and anything else you might be working on. It depends how general. Well, I have two books that are just short essays. They're based on um, uh, a radio show that I used to do locally. And one is called 99 Nats, Nits, and Nibblers. The other is called 99 More Maggots, Mites, and Munchers. And they're just sort of like little insect profiles. The, the biggest book is um, 
bugs in the system, insects and their impact on human affairs. Right, that's the one I have. Right, which explains kind of how insects have really shaped our lives and our culture and our evolution, um, which means we shouldn't ignore them. Uh, and then buzzwords, and it's a collection of the columns from American entomologists, humorous essays. In fact, we got a quote from Barry for the cover who said... Dave Barry? Yeah, the humorous who words to the effect of, if there is a funnier book about insects, I do not know of it. Because I had actually, one of the essays I'd written uh, about prosthetic legs for cockroaches um, ended up in one of his columns. So. And there's a new book coming out in August, Harvard University Press. It's called uh, what do we The Earwig's Tale. That's T-A-L-I-L. Uh, it's a m- modern bestiary of multi-legged legends. So bestiaries are medieval collections of uh, uh, usually, uh, well, descriptions of natural life that usually has some sort of moral lesson associated with it. And uh, people believed them completely, even though some of the creatures described were totally fantastic manticores and unicorns right next to the rhinoceros. Uh, well, We'd like to think we've progressed beyond that point. But in reality, the Internet has created a whole uh, new form of bestiary in these sort of urban legends or or modern misconceptions about insects, illustrated by the brilliant Jay Hostler, who did, did Clan Apis, in the style of a bestiary of, uh, oh, the brain-boring earwig, for example, or uh, the aerodynamically unstable bumblebee, or, you know, so all these um, convictions people have about insects that actually aren't true. The brain-boring earwig made famous by Night Gallery. Uh, well, it, it goes back further than that, actually. There's this long-standing conviction. I, there's only, I know only of two publications that actually document earwigs in the ear. Um, hundreds that document cockroaches. If anything's gonna bore through your brain, it's more likely to be a cockroach. But earwigs, you know, are not bent on boring through your cerebellum. But, uh, what are they bent on boring through? Uh, kinda depends on the species of earwigs. Some of them are like parasitic on bats, you know, but, uh, a few bat ears may be in trouble, but um, uh, a lot of them are uh, sort of opportunistic feeders. They like sort of moist places. They are uh, they'll feed on roots and plant, you know, debris and the like. But nobody eats brains that I know of. So Lawrence Harvey was safe all along in that uh-huh. night gallery episode. Yeah, well, I mean, movies kind of tap into our innermost fears, however ridiculous they are. So, um, just give me a letter, I can tell you. I'm just trying to think of some of the other ones. Um, Oh, zapper bugs, which the Z is about, uh, sort of the electrocution devices. And in reality, they're not killing mosquitoes at all. They're killing enormous quantities of completely innocuous things. There's a fellow at the University of Delaware who did that work. Ptolemy. Right. Right. I remember writing about that years ago. And, uh, what's another letter? Um, oh, the idea that, um, if you pinch your skin while a mosquito is feeding, it'll explode. And that doesn't work either. No, they can remove that little needle out of your skin no matter how hard you try to push your skin together. There there are exploding mosquitoes, but that's after they've been surgically altered so that the feedback signals that, that indicate to them that they're full are interrupted. But that's that goes beyond most people's thirst for revenge, <laughs> getting and tiny little tools to sever their nerve cords. So. And that book comes out this summer. It's supposed to be out in August. Great. We'll definitely look for that. Thanks very much. Thank you. By the way, in June, the multi-talented Mae Barenbaum won first place 
in the National Pollinator Week recipe contest for her dessert called a biscotti. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. You heard May mention prosthetic legs for roaches. Well, an Indian elephant in Thailand has been fitted with a prosthetic leg, a big one. Story two. NASA researchers have found the amino acid glycine in samples of the comet Vilt 2. Story 3, an extrasolar planet is orbiting its star in the wrong direction. And story 4, if Stephen Hawking were British and had to rely on the British National Health Service, he'd be dead today. <laughs> okay, you, you hear me laughing, so I know that it's all over. Anyway, time is up. Story 1 is true. The elephant's artificial leg is plastic with an iron bar for strength. For more, check out the feature on the fake leg in the video section of our website. And don't get any funny ideas, any umbrella stand manufacturers who may be listening. Story 2 is true. Glycine was found in samples of the comet Vilt 2 that were captured by the Stardust spacecraft. And isotope analysis indicates the glycine did not have an earthly origin. So some of the stuff of life might indeed reach Earth prefabricated. And story three is true. The extrasolar planet is orbiting its star in the wrong direction. And its turn signal has been on the whole time. Now, the planet is called WASP-17, and the research will appear in the Astrophysical Journal. It's the 17th planet found by WASP, the Wide Area Search for Planets, a British effort. It's the first planet known to go in the wrong direction around its star. That is, it's going in the opposite direction from the star's spin. It's thought that WASP-17 smashed into a large object early in its formation, which put it on the wrong path as often happens with youngsters. All of which means that story four about Stephen Hawking surviving because he doesn't rely on the British National Health Service is totally bogus. Because, of course, Hawking is British and is cared for through the National Health Service. But that's not what they thought at the publication Investors Business Daily. In a recent editorial warning about the dangers of health care reform, those geniuses wrote, quote, People such as scientist Stephen Hawking wouldn't have a chance in the UK where the National Health Service would say the life of this brilliant man because of his physical handicaps is essentially worthless, end quote. Maybe they assumed he's American because he's so smart or because his voice synthesizer doesn't talk like this, Governor. Anyway, Hawking issued a statement that read, quote, I wouldn't be here today if it were not for the NHS, National Health Service. I have received a large amount of high-quality treatment, without which I would not have survived. Well, that's it for this episode of Science Talk. Check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news and all of our nifty features on origins, which is the subject of the special September single topic issue of Scientific American Magazine. That's origins, not oranges, although we may have something on the origin of oranges. I'm not sure. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. (laughs) 